Uh, welcome to week 10 now of our series. Uh, for 10 weeks, we've been looking at the life of David, uh, who actually, really no one is given more real estate other than Jesus. Uh, no one in all of Scripture is given more real estate than, than David. And uh, we're now in week 10 of a series called Peaks and Valleys, where we're looking at his life. And if you were here last week, it was, at least on the front end, it was a heavy one. Uh, we were looking at what, what I call the deepest, darkest valley of David's life. It was also probably, I think, the most famous failure in the entire Bible. It's the, the episode of David's life where um, he stole Bathsheba uh, from another man named Uriah and then had him killed. And um, so last week, we really focused on the concept of failure, which is why it was so heavy. Um, you know, we talked about why it happens and how it happens and all the moving parts and how it can be dealt with. And, you know, I was thinking that we were done in 2 Samuel 12, and we kind of just move on and conclude this series, but it seems appropriate to just park there for one more week. And so today, we're still in 2 Samuel 12. We're still in this episode in David's life, but the difference between this week and last week is now we're looking at the aftermath of this failure in David's life and how he responded to it. And today, I want to ask and attempt to answer a question that I think um, just where, wherever you're at with God, with the Bible, with church, uh, it, this is a question that is as relevant as, as any question I've ever asked up here. The question we're going to get at is how do you rise from your failures with more strength, more wisdom, more humility, and more joy than you had before? So I'm in 2 uh, Samuel chapter 12, uh, verses 15 through 23. It says, The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. On the seventh day, the baby died. But David's servants were afraid to tell him the baby was dead. They said, look, while the baby was alive, we spoke to him and he wouldn't listen to us. So how can we tell him the baby's dead? He may do something desperate. When David saw that his servants were whispering to each other, he guessed that the baby was dead. So he asked his servants, is the baby dead? He's dead, they replied. Then David got up from the ground. He washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to the Lord's house and worshiped. And he went home and requested something to eat, so they served him food and he ate. His servants asked him, what did you just do? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept, but when he died, you got up and ate food. He answered, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he'll never return to me. This is God's word. <clears throat> this is probably one of the toughest texts in the Bible to teach because it is a, uh, a concentration of all the things that I personally never want to be asked as a pastor. Uh, what you're dealing with in the verses that I just read is the death of a child at the hand of God, uh, unanswered prayer, the reality of judgment and uh, the grief that comes with that. All the things that we would rather avoid. If you're listening to this and you're not really sure where you're at with God or what you think about all this, um, maybe 
one of these themes in this passage is the reason that you sort of broke with the church and, and, and broke with the faith to begin with. I think we would all just rather get to a John 3.16 kind of feel-good sermon uh, and avoid this. The problem with that is that we're all going to deal with the things that David's dealing with in this passage sooner or later. What I mean by that is one of the things that everybody listening to this at home and online has in common is sooner or later we're, we're all going to deal with death, either ours or that of someone that we love. Sooner or later we're all going to deal with unanswered prayer. Sooner or later we're all going to deal with the reality of God's judgment and all the grief that comes with that. And so that's why it doesn't do us any good to sidestep this. The best thing that we can do is just hit this head on and face it. And... Uh, I'm sure a, a number of people can personally attest to this in their own life, but it's really only in the times of our lives when we deal with what David is dealing with here that we can even figure out what we really believe. You know, it's one thing to come to church on a Sunday and say the things that we say about God, uh, but it's when we find ourselves where David found himself here, when we're on the floor under the weight of all that suffering, that's when we discover what our religion really is and whether it was really worth anything in the first place. That's why we have to figure out how to deal with this. And if you were here with me last week, you know that what brought David to this place was this really ugly, really shameful episode in his life where he became consumed with stupidity and foolishness and narcissism and egomania and self-centeredness and this sense of entitlement, uh, which led him to do some terrible things uh, and, and eventually brought him to this place where he's on the floor um, but what's amazing about this passage is that somehow in the midst of that suffering, he rises and he does so uh, with more strength, with more humility, with more wisdom, with more joy than he had beforehand. And so this passage begs this question. I think it's a really good question. I think it's a really important question for us to answer. The question is, how on earth could this kind of suffering, you know, the loss of a child, uh, the pain of unanswered prayer, the reality of God's judgment and the grief that comes with all of that, how could this turn David into a better version of himself? And the answer is, and this is going to frame what we talk about today, that David, David understood three things about the biblical concept of suffering. David understood what, su what his suffering was not, he understood what it is, and he understood where it needs to lead. And so for you and I, you know, thousands of years later coming into this text, if we can get a hold of what we're meant to get a hold of in this passage, then what we will gain is the ability to rise from our failures and all the suffering that so often accompanies those failures better and stronger on the other side. And so the first thing that we're going to cover today, uh, the first thing that David knew about his suffering which is something that every person who comes to Jesus can know about their suffering, uh, which is what suffering is not. So let's talk about what suffering is not. Suffering is not evidence that you're condemned. Suffering is not uh, evidence that God has rejected you. It's not evidence that God is done with you. All right, uh, just to briefly recap last week's message, what happened that led David to this point was he stole a woman named Bathsheba from one of his own soldiers named Uriah, and then he had Uriah murdered. And David thought he got away with that at the end of chapter 11, uh, but God sent the prophet Nathan into his life to confront him, 
And their whole, um, their, their confrontation ended with this two-verse exchange I want to read to you that takes place just prior to this. It's 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Now that phrase that David hears first here, the Lord has taken away your sin, David knew what that meant. For, for Nathan, the prophet of God, to say the Lord has taken away your sin meant that whatever happened to him from then on out, David could at least comfort himself knowing that God had decided not to deal with him as his sins deserved. Because had God decided to do that, David would have died. But what Nathan is saying here is not the Lord is going to hold your sin over your head. He says, no, the Lord has taken away your sin. Meaning whatever happens after this, David knew I'm not condemned by God. I'm not rejected by God. His promises toward me are not canceled. He's not done with me because Nathan said the Lord's taken that sin away. And yet, even though Nathan says you will not die, the son born to you will. And what you're seeing in, in this little two-verse exchange between Nathan and David is this mysterious paradox that the Bible offers us about suffering. It's that in Jesus Christ, every single one of us can hear the same thing that David heard here, that the Lord has taken away your sin. The moment you give your life to Jesus, there is a fundamental change in your identity in the eyes of God. That means that in Jesus, when God looks at you, he does not see a failure. He does not see someone he's still trying to make his mind up about. Uh, he doesn't see somebody that he's disappointed in. According to Scripture, when God looks at someone who's put their trust in Jesus, he sees you as though you are clothed in the perfect, sinless righteousness of Jesus. It's as though you lived the perfect life that he lived. From that moment, for the rest of your existence, you are fully loved. You are fully forgiven. You are fully accepted because the punishment of all your sin, past, present, and future, fell on Jesus, was paid for in full by Jesus. The Lord has taken away your sin by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And yet, and yet, and yet, there can and there will still be pain and suffering as a direct result of the choices that you and I make. Now, the reason that it's so important to start here and to hold this tension in our own lives is because especially for those of us that were raised in a traditional, more religious environment, there's this nagging tendency for the heart to develop this, this thought process that says, if I live a good life, then God will give me a good life. And so the opposite side of that coin is, if my life is not going well, if I'm experiencing difficulty, then God must be out to get me because I have not lived a good enough life. Now, the problem with that mindset is that Scripture is literally full of characters that cut completely against the grain of that overly simplistic narrative. Right? In the Old Testament, we have an entire book called Job that's all about one man experiencing unbelievably terrible things that were in no way, shape, or form a punishment for the life that he lived. As a matter of fact, Job's stupid friends come into his life in that book, and that's what they say, that the only possible reason you could be experiencing this, Job, is because you must have some kind of sin. And this stunning, ironic conclusion to the book, God winds up rebuking Job's stupid friends 
and justifying Job. All right, and then, of course, in the New Testament, this is driven home in an even more powerful way because the New Testament, obviously, is centrally about a person who was the only perfect human being who's ever lived, experiencing more suffering than any other human being ever has. That's Jesus Christ. And so the point is, if you go through life and, and, and fail to grasp this first thing that, that David was able to grasp here, and if you go through life and every time you experience suffering, you, you shift into this mindset that says, okay, God must not really love me. God must be angry at me. God must be disappointed in me. Maybe he has rejected me. Maybe, you know, this is my condemnation. And there's really only two trajectories for you. When that mindset begins to take hold, there's only two places you can end up. On one end, you'll wind up resenting yourself because you'll tell yourself, that the reason that you're having such a difficult time is because you must, have, you, you must be a worse person than all the people around you. That's the only way to explain the suffering you're experiencing. And then you'll be crushed under the weight of your suffering. Or if you don't go that way, you'll go exactly the opposite way. And instead of resenting yourself, you'll resent God. And you'll quietly begin to tell yourself as you look at the people around you who seem to be living easier lives than you, no, no, God got this wrong because I've worked harder than the people around me. And I'm a more moral person than the people around me. I've tried harder than them. I deserve better than this. And in that case, your suffering won't crush you. It'll harden you. And if you want to know which one of those is worse, I think the answer is yes. But the point is that that's what happens to so many people. You, you, you hear so often, it's like one of those Instagram little wisdom statements, you know, that pain makes us stronger, suffering, loss, hardship makes us stronger. It's, it's so ridiculous. There are so many people that go through so many terrible things and they come out worse for the wear. They come out crushed by their suffering or hardened by their suffering. But the point of this story is to show us that David is an exception to that rule. David comes out of all the things that God walked him through, and he's better. And the reason for that is first and foremost because David understood something that, that every single follower of Jesus can and must hold on to. It's that your suffering is not evidence of your condemnation. It is not evidence that God has rejected you. He hasn't. So the question is, if that's what suffering is not then what is it? And the answer, according to this story, the answer, according to so many stories in the Bible, and the answer that a lot of us can look back into our own lives and see is that suffering was a refining fire that God sent into David's life to purge him of the things that needed to go so that he could be the person God called him to be. All right, if you're a, a, a Christian, then you know that what I'm about to say is true. Forgiveness is not magic, and what I mean by that is the moment that you come to God through Jesus and you put your trust in him to make you right with God, knowing that you can't make yourself right and you experience what scripture refers to as the forgiveness of God, it's not like that forgiveness teleports you to the ideal version of yourself. You are objectively forgiven in the eyes of God right then and there, but the plain fact of the matter is that all of the habits of your heart and my heart that led us to do the things that had us asking for forgiveness in the first place are still there, and they need to be dealt with so that our character can catch up to what God has actually done for us. That's a lifelong process that the Bible refers to as sanctification, and generally speaking, one of the main things that speeds that process along is the refining fire of suffering. So I remember when I was fresh out the fire academy, <clears throat> I got detailed to a, just for one shift, I got detailed to a firehouse in Annapolis. And uh, keep in mind, like literally just out of the academy. So I was real nervous and, 
you know, didn't really know how to relax, didn't really know how to even act like I had graduated. And so I, I remember at the end of my shift, I walked into my lieutenant's office, and I, and I did exactly like the academy taught me to do, which I, I stood against the wall opposite his desk, and I stood exactly the way they, they taught us to stand in the academy, which is like this, in case you're interested. Now you know how to stand like you're in the fire academy. Congratulations. And my lieutenant did what any good lieutenant would have done in that scenario, which is make fun of me. And he said, hey, take it easy. You're not in the academy anymore. Uh, the truth is, I kind of still was in the academy, at least in a sense. Because yes, I had graduated. And yes, I was technically out in the field. But for the six months prior to that, I had gotten accustomed to this way of life in which I was on trial every day. And I was under constant scrutiny. And you know, I had to earn my keep and justify my existence and pay attention to literally everything that I did all the time. And when you get used to that way of living, that's a very difficult thing to just sort of turn off. And so there I was at a firehouse in Annapolis. I was technically graduated. I was technically in the field, but I was still thinking and living and operating like somebody who was still in the, in the academy. And biblically speaking, it is entirely possible for you and I to go through our lives like that in a spiritual sense. To go through life in such a way that technically, yes, we are forgiven, but we're still thinking and we're still living and we're still operating like somebody who's not. And what needs to happen in our lives, all throughout our lives, is our, our character needs to be developed and refined to the point that it actually bears fruit in keeping with the truth of what God has done for us. And so for David, you know, it's an amazing thing. I mean, you think about where he was for a second. I'm, I'm sure the relief that David felt when Nathan the prophet stood in front of him and said, the Lord has taken away your sin. I mean, that's a kind of relief that money can't buy. That's a great thing to hear. The truth is, though, the David that heard those words was the same David that just stole another man's wife and had him murdered because of this selfishness and this pride and this sense of entitlement that had grown and developed in his life. And the point of this story is God loved David way too much to leave him that way. And so he sent the refining fire of suffering into his life to purge the things that needed to go from his life. And here's where this, I think, kind of comes home for you and I, because you know, maybe you're asking the question, okay, well, what exactly needed to be purged from David's life? Well, I'm gonna offer to you what needed to be burned out of David's life is the same thing that needs to be burned out of your and my life. Nathan actually already pinpointed it for us in verse 14 when he says, because you've treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. David treated the Lord with contempt, Nathan says. And I, I just wanna offer to you there's not a person alive who doesn't do that. So let's ask the question, what is contempt? What does this mean to treat God with contempt? If you are accused of contempt of court, what that means is that you have failed to respect the judicial system and specifically the judge. Literally, it means that, that you have not given them the weight that they should have in your life. And, and, and really, you've just taken them too lightly. And it's the same thing when you treat another person with contempt. It means that you're treating them like they're insignificant. You're treating them like they don't matter. And what Nathan is saying here to David is, David, that's exactly how you've treated the Lord. And that is the heart of every other issue that David had in this story, which is an interesting thing to think about because what that means, it, it, had you come to David during this, this, this episode in his life, 
when he's wandering around on the rooftop and he sees a woman bathing and she looks good to him and he figures out who she is and then he sends for her and then he you know, finds out that she's pregnant and now he's got to cover it up and he's murdering his own soldiers and other people are getting caught in the crossfire. Had you come to David during that period in his life and, and, and kind of pulled him aside and said, hey, David, let, let's have a talk real quick. You believe in God, yes? David would not, of course David would have said that. Of course, it's not like David for, for you know, a two and a half month period of his life became an atheist. He would have said, yes, I still believe in God. That wasn't the issue in David's life. The issue in his life is that despite the fact that he believed in God, the reality of God did not have the weight it should have had in his life. That ceased to be the central part of his life. That ceased to really matter in his life. And it's no different with all of us. The issue is that so often, even if we would say, I believe in God, even if we would read our Bible, even if we would pray, even if we would come to church, even if we would say, of course, I believe in God, the issue is that his reality is not big enough in our life to inform and then transform our reality. That's what it means to hold him in contempt. Now, the problem with that, the problem with holding God in contempt or showing contempt for God is that if we are not giving God the place that he deserves in our lives, we're giving something or someone else that place. And this is true even if you wouldn't consider yourself to be a religious person. I don't know anybody who's, who's kind of explained this better than a guy named David Foster Wallace, who uh, himself was not a Christian, as you're going to see here in a moment in this quote. Uh, I found this quote a few years before. I usually break it out a couple of times a year because I don't know anybody that explains this concept better than he does. He gave this, this is part of a, um, an ex, a um, commencement speech at Kenyon College back in 2005. Here's what he had to say. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And here's where you see he's not a Christian. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Wallace is making two really important points there, both of which Scripture affirms. Number one, that everybody worships. Number two, worshiping the wrong thing will absolutely ruin your life. We see this over and over and over again in Scripture. Scripture reminds us, when when you talk about sin, that the problem underneath every other problem that we have that gives rise to every other problem that we have really fundamentally is about what we worship. It's about what we've allowed to take the place that's only safe for God to take in our lives. You know, what, what, we're, what we're looking to to give our lives meaning, what we're looking to, to to satisfy us, what we're looking to is the foundation to build our lives on. By default, we look to, to something or someone other than God to be and to do that for us. But what Wallace's quote is getting at here and what David's life is showing us here 
is that when we do that, when we show contempt for God and allow something else to take his place, it always inevitably leads to destruction. It eats us alive. And my point in saying all this is to simply make this final point before we move on. Only a God who loves you would send fire into your life to burn that out of you instead of just watching you drive off a cliff. That is only ever the action of a God who's operating with your best interests in mind. Because whether we like this or not, as painful as this suffering is, as, as bad as we are at recognizing it for what it is while we're going through it, I think anybody with any level of self-awareness can say, I would never change if God did not deal with me that way. And so here, here we have David. His child is sick, and he's on the floor, and he's praying night and day, and he won't eat. And his friends have never seen him like this before. And on the seventh day, Scripture says, the child dies. And so David's friends, you, just, you can picture the scene. They're kind of huddled up at the corner of the room or on the other side of a door, and they're whispering. They know what's happened, and they're terrified to tell David, just like you or I, I'm sure, would be terrified to tell David because they're convinced that the version of David that gets up off the floor is going to be a whole lot worse than the David that fell down on it. But the ironic twist, the, 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 the kind of surprise ending to this story and really to this whole, whole chapter in David's life is that when David gets up, he's better. When David gets up, he's stronger. It's almost like, a, it's almost like the picture of resurrection. He gets up and he is a completely new person. And it's what he says and it's what he does afterwards that proves this. In verse 22, when, when asked to explain why he did this, here's exactly what David says. Verse 22, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. You notice what David does not say there. He doesn't say, the Lord might be fair to me and let him live. He says, the Lord might be gracious to me. The implied statement there is that some, some, somewhere along the line, when he, was under the, when he was on the floor under the weight of all of that, somewhere in that process, David lost this idea that God owed him anything. David let go of the idea that God was under some obligation to save him from the consequences of his own actions. What you're seeing here is a king who is finally gripped by the reality of God's grace. And with that, he has absolutely lost the sense of entitlement that led him to do the things that brought him to this in the first place. Verse 23, he follows that. He says, but now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he'll never return to me. There's not a hint of, of bitterness there. There's not a hint of, of, uh, of self-pity there. There is a total willingness to accept reality as, as it is, but there's a, there's a surefire hope at the future that somehow one day God would clean this mess up. And so you zoom out from this, and what you're seeing is that the, the, oh, by the way, I didn't read this on the front end, but after this, the very next verse says that David went to Bathsheba and he comforted Bathsheba. If you've been paying attention, that is exactly the first time in this entire episode in David's life that he's treated Bathsheba as anything other than an object. So you zoom out from this, and what you're seeing is that David, before he hits the floor, he's marked by pride, he's marked by self-centeredness, he's marked by this ugly sense of, of, of entitlement, and he's using people as a means to his own end. The David that gets up off the floor has left all that on the floor. He's a new person. He's not the same. Now, you hear that, and I think the first thought is, hey, that's great for David. Fantastic. But how do I make sure that when, when I rise from my failures and all the suffering that so often attaches themselves to failure, 
How do I make sure that I rise the same way that David did? And the answer is that we have to do the same thing that David did. I'm going to read this to you. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. This might sound simple. I don't think... It might be simple. I just think it's profound and simple at the same time. Verse 20. David got up from the ground. He washed. He anointed himself. He changed his clothes. He went to the Lord's house. And he worshiped. Then he went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food and he ate. And what David does here and what you and I need to do, especially when we are in the fire that David was in, is make the choice to worship. I hope this doesn't come across any differently than I mean it, but I think it's worth pointing out here. Over the last 18 months, there are a whole lot of people who before that period of time were regularly going to church, were regularly worshiping, were regularly spending time in the presence of God with their brothers and sisters who aren't anymore or at least they're not nearly as regularly as they used to be. And I'm just going to share a perspective with you. I don't think a single one of them, I've talked to a few of them, none of them has said that their relationship with God is stronger or more life-giving now that they're no longer regularly worshiping alongside God's people. For the past 2,000 years, the weekly worship gathering every Resurrection Sunday has been a central part of the spiritual formation of God's people. Hebrews commands us not to forsake it. And I think this picture in Scripture is one of the best places to look to to show us exactly how important it is because David has just spent seven days on the ground without food. Twice in my life I have done a seven-day fast. I was starving by the end of it. Here David for seven days has gone without food, and yet when he gets up, The very first thing he does, even before he feeds his body physically, is he makes sure that his soul is fed in the presence of God in worship. And what his example is showing us is that we need worship when our lives are going well. We need it even more when they're not. A guy named John Ortberg, he put it this way. He said, I need to worship because without it I can forget that I have a big God beside me and live in fear. I need to worship because without it, I can forget his calling and begin to live in a spirit of self-preoccupation. I need to worship because without it, I lose a sense of wonder and gratitude and plod through life with blinders on. I need to worship because my natural tendency is towards self-reliance and stubborn independence. The point is we need worship. And specifically, we need to be reminded of two things as we worship. Both of them are foreshadowed in this text. We need to be reminded of the the death of Jesus Christ in our place and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as our hope. I'm going to walk through both of those things and and, and we'll end our time today. First off, the death of Jesus in our place. I mentioned this last week, but the child in this story quite obviously points forward to Jesus. When you zoom out from this, what you're seeing is that the way that God was able to forgive David's sin is because David's son paid for that sin with his life. And this points forward to the gospel that shows us that the only way that God was able to forgive and is able to forgive any of our sin is because Jesus Christ, who is called the son of David, the true son of David, the ultimate son of David, died for our sin in our place. We need to be reminded of Jesus's substitutionary atonement for us, especially when we're suffering. 
Before, before I got out of 2 Samuel 12, I know if I was new to church, or maybe even if I wasn't, there's one nagging question that I would have that I, I just felt like I would, I would be dropping the ball if I didn't at least speak to it. I have to believe that somebody has been with me the last two weeks, and you look at this, and, and the question that you're asking is, why did David's son have to die? in order for God to forgive him. I understand the foreshadowing. I understand the significance. I get what it points forward to. But why do it this way? I just want to be honest with you. I do not know. I don't know why God did it this way instead of another way. And, and as a, as a, not only as a pastor, but as a parent, that's a, really, that's a really hard pill for me to swallow. But the more that I thought about that, the more that it dawned on me, I think that's the point. That the natural tendency for the, for the human heart when we experience suffering is to call out and ask why. And so often, anybody that's been through any kind of real suffering knows more often than not, we never get that question answered. That's not just a, a, a quote, problem for Christianity. That's a problem for every belief system, especially secularism. No belief system offers you a concrete reason for why you suffered or, or, or will suffer in the specific ways that you do suffer. But what Christianity offers you is something better than an answer. It offers you a person. When you go to the cross of Jesus Christ, what you are seeing is that God himself was willing to suffer for you. That's something that no other belief system even claims. When you go to the cross, you see that God the Father, please listen to this. When you go to the cross, you see that God the Father was willing to become a childless father for you. And Jesus the Son was willing to become a fatherless child for you. And the reason they were willing to do that was so that you could be brought into his family. And what that means is that even if you never get an answer to why you have experienced the things you've experienced, even if you never get an answer to why you lived through the childhood you lived through, even if you never figure out why you experienced the abuse you experienced, even if you never figure out what the reason is that your tribe, your child struggles the way your child struggles. Even if you never find out what the reason is, the cross of Jesus Christ will show you what the reason's not. It cannot be that God doesn't love you. It cannot be that God doesn't care about you. He went through far too much for you. He demonstrated his love for you. And that while you and I were sinners, he died for us. And because Christianity offers you a God that has suffered for you in your place, what that means is that regardless of how you feel, you are never, ever truly alone in your suffering. I'm going to tell you, search the world. You will not find another belief system that offers you that kind of resource in the midst of suffering. Nothing but Jesus. So the first thing we need to be reminded of, especially when we're in the fire, especially when we're on the floor, is the death of Jesus in our place. But the second thing, and this will be the last thing we cover today, is we need to see as we worship the resurrection of Jesus Christ as our hope. And with that, I want to call the worship team up. When David ends this and he says, I will go to him, but he will never return to me, what David is doing is he's looking forward to the promise that you and I now have access to in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity teaches that because Jesus Christ was physically raised for you and I, that every single person who puts their trust in him will experience resurrection, not just spiritually, not just metaphorically, not just, you know, we achieve enlightenment and have inner peace in this life, but that for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus as he was physically raised from the grave, so you will be physically resurrected as well. 
And the reason that we need to hold on to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as our hope, and I hope this is personal for somebody. I hope this means something to somebody because we're done now. The reason it's so important to hold on to the resurrection is because the resurrection proves, it promises that even if you are like David, even if you have made an absolute mess of your own life, even if you have done things that you can hardly believe you were capable of, even if you've hurt the people around you, the resurrection of Jesus Christ promises that one day God's going to make it all right because the resurrection is not just a consolation for the, for the life that you lost. It's the restoration of the life you always wanted but never had. The resurrection of Jesus promises that you will get your body back, not your old body, but the body you always wanted but never had. The resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ promises that you're going to get your life back, the life you always wanted but never had. The resurrection promises that you're going to get relationships back, the relationships that you always wanted but never had. It promises that you're going to get this whole world back, all of creation back. It's going to be renewed. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be free from the horrible, corrupting power of sin that we've only ever known, and no one and nothing can take it from you. That's why you hold on to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question we set out to answer today, how do you rise from your failures like David did? How do you rise from your failures, making sure that you have more strength, more hope, more joy, more humility, more wisdom, more love? On the other side, the answer is clear. You do what David did. You make the decision to worship, even if it hurts, even if you don't have your answers yet, even if you never get them, even if, even if all you can offer is a broken hallelujah, you show up and you make the decision to worship, and you worship until you see Jesus dying in your place and rising as your hope, rising as your hope. That's it. That's all. Let me, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, I want to thank you as a sinner, as a sinner saved by grace. I want to thank you that I cannot mess up my life so much that you can't fix it. I want to thank you that there is so much hope on the other side of, his li of this life by grace through faith in the name of Jesus that somehow it's going to be more beautiful for having been broken. Father, would you open our eyes this morning to see the hope that we have because of Jesus? Would you help us to rise with more strength, with more hope, with more wisdom, with more joy that we might glorify you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>